Uh, and thank you for making time to come to this lunchtime uh, to listen to what it is that we as a group called Focus is putting on on the subject of life after death. Can I especially welcome you if it's your first time here or you're actually here because of the topic and you've been invited by friends. My name is Richard and I'll have the pleasure, I hope and pray, to be able to speak to you on this incredibly serious yet incredibly, I hope and pray, fruitful topic. But before I speak, uh, because we do believe in a God who does speak, a God who is sovereign over all things, I'm actually going to pray to him now. And you might not be someone who is used to that, but that's okay. Hang in there. I'm actually going to ask for his help, because I really do believe that he will speak through his word. So will you pray with me for a few moments, if you would like to do that with me. Let's pray. We thank you again for the privilege it is to serve you here, for those of us who know you, and for those of us who are here for the first time or perhaps wanting to find out more. Please, Father, so speak to us in these next few minutes from your word, and we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may say, I'm a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as... Finish it for me. One. What's the name of the song? Imagine. Imagine by... Oh, let's go for that one. For John Lennon. That's right. Here he is. I'll have you know that he wrote that song in 1971, by the way, sang it in 1971. You guys know the lyrics and you grew up with my music. I just thought I'd share that with you because you don't have your own music these days. Do you? I go to your wedding receptions and the like and you dance to my music, not yours. Imagine. In the rest of this song, he dreams of a united humanity with no heaven, no hell, no countries, no possessions, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion. In other words, when you die, says John Lennon, that's it. There's nothing beyond death. So let's unite as one humanity in a global, effectively communist regime where we share our resources and live with no possessions, no countries, no religion, no purpose to live or die for. Do you think John Lennon was a dreamer? Or do you have any sense in which you think this actually might be attractive? I mean, given that we've seen the bloodshed in Ukraine, let alone in Afghanistan, and let alone coming out of what was the bloodiest century of history to date in the 20th century with World War I and World War II, it's somewhat attractive, isn't it? To have no more things to die for, as it were. Except for when you actually do see the images coming out of Ukraine and you see uh, the president of Ukraine willing to die for his country. You kind of get that, don't you? There is a cause to die for. There is a cause to live for. People are doing that all the time. But John Lennon's solution is to imagine that there is no life after death, no heaven, no hell, no afterlife of any form, no matter what religion you may follow, because it doesn't matter. 
I mean, does this really accord with reality? Have you ever pondered if there is life after death? Well, over the next two weeks, as Jesse shared with us, we want to share with you what the Bible actually says about life after death. We'd love you to use your God-given intelligence, your God-given minds and freedom here to actually explore what the central character of the Bible says about the subject. And he claims to be the Lord of heaven and earth. The Lord of heaven and earth, namely Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, no worthy historian denies that Jesus walked this earth some 2,000 years ago, or that biographies written about him in what we know as the New Testament are actually credible historical accounts. No worthy historian would deny those things. So can I invite you now to look at me, look, well, look at me, that would be a great thing to do, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> I'm so gorgeous. Uh, and, and to look with me at the scriptures, at this portion of this biography called John's Gospel. And so it's there in your outlines, and that's why we actually had it read to us. See, in this account, we actually meet a family that Jesus knew and loved very much. There are two sisters, Mary and Martha. They've seen their brother Lazarus very sadly die. And when Jesus meets Martha on the way to Lazarus's tomb, he's been there for four days. But listen to Martha's words, and you'll see that in verse 21, which is a small 21. If you're not used to the numbers here, there's a small number 21 there. And we're going to read just those few verses. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, you may have thought about this before. You may not have. Either way, I'd love you to speak at your tables just for a few seconds. What do you think Jesus means by the resurrection on the last day? What do you think Jesus means by the resurrection on the last day? Go for it. You've got about 30 seconds. Okay, I'll call you back together again. Just wondering whether I can get some uh, thoughts from some of the tables. Any hands up? Just love to hear some thoughts. Is that too easy a question? Too hard? I'm always after the sweet spot, the Goldilocks spot. Yes? Do you mean Martha? Yeah. Do I mean Martha? Because verse 24 is... Oh, yes. I meant Martha. I'm so sorry. Uh, now, that's you asking a question and me answering, but to my question, do you have an answer? <laughs> oh, the pain. At the table we discussed um, whether or not resurrection features prominently in the Old Testament. And if, if so or not so, when Martha actually get this idea of resurrection? Yeah, um, yeah. Had she already been speaking to Jesus? Yes. Had she already known about it from Scripture within part of two days at a time? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So what we were thinking is what she means is probably something very accurate to what Jesus is going to be talking about later on in the Gospel. Right, okay. But we didn't get anywhere. Though. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. That was really helpful. Yes. Um, I think it's a lot of people's 
Oh, it's lovely to have you here. Welcome. And I'm so glad you can speak. Please do. So, yes, we do have a concept of the end of the day, the last day. And if the Messiah arrives and he uh, rebuilds the temple for the third time, and that brings the golden age, um, the, the Lord's golden age for us. Yes. And which all creatures of the earth will return. Right. Right, and, and that's how uh, you understand the resurrection yeah. and what that means. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And, I, and if you are here for the first time, I hope you see that what we are is, a, can I put it this way, a, as safe a community as we can to be able to share with each other, and we really want to do that. And we may disagree and so on, but that's okay. Yeah, we, we can actually talk it through and look at what the Bible teaches because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about, right? And so thank you so much for sharing. And we want to keep having these discussions as we look at the scriptures together. Uh, but in coming back to what the text is saying here, I think that what in answer uh, to the question beforehand as well, you know, did Martha have some understanding of this from the Old Testament? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. That's right. So you go to passages like Ezekiel 36 and 37, it speaks about the resurrection of dry bones that come together, you know, and then the bones start to connect together and then you have this living army of people, as it were, that come from dead bones and so there's a resurrection of some kind and there are passages like that that are coming through. And I think what she is speaking about, and, and please keep talking together about this, is the bodily resurrection of people after they die when Jesus returns and they will be raised up to be judged on that final day. Now, please talk to each other about that later on. By all means, ask me questions later. Because that's why I think, you know, when Jesus says Lazarus will rise again, she understandably thinks that Jesus is referring to this final day when everyone will rise to be judged. In other words, I think the Bible speaks of a day when all of humanity will rise bodily from the dead and be judged. And if that's the case, then this is not our souls escaping our flesh into a spiritual realm, which essentially arises from Greek philosophy, doesn't it? Where the flesh is actually evil and the soul is what is good and so therefore it's a very low view of the body and the soul is the real you and the body is discarded at death. That's a very Greek platonic thought and those of us studying PPE, you're all over that, aren't you? You know that, that's, that's Plato, Platonism. But nor is this referring to nirvana espoused by several religions, a release of the soul from some kind of karmic bondage into a physical or rather non-physical realm beyond reincarnation. And nor is it any sense of purgatory where your soul is in some intermediate state being refined through divine discipline. No. No, the Bible speaks of the resurrection of the body, a genuine physical body that exists beyond death to face judgment. The resurrection. This is what Martha was referring to, I think, when Jesus said that Lazarus will rise again because she knew that Lazarus would indeed rise bodily from the dead at the resurrection. But look how Jesus responds in 
the small number 25 or verse 25 there. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Where there is death, Jesus resurrects people bodily. Death does not have the final say. Jesus does. Jesus has the final say beyond death because Jesus is the Lord of life and death. Jesus will be the judge at the resurrection on the last day. So as Jesus asks Martha, so I ask you, do you believe this? Do you really believe that Jesus will be your judge when you rise bodily from the dead? Physically. Because a lot rides on that answer. When we hear the voice of Jesus on the last day, we will all rise bodily from the dead. Such is the power of his word. And we will either rise to be saved or we'll be ri- we will rise to be condemned. And everything depends on whether you believe Jesus. Now more of that in a moment. But listen to how Martha responded in verse 27. Small number 27. She said to him, to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are, note, the Christ. That you are the Son of God who is coming into the world. Right? To believe Jesus is not simply to believe in his existence. Or even that he is a good teacher. Or even that he's God. No, it's not that kind of belief, you see. Rather, it is to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Christ is not Jesus' surname. Right? It's synonymous with the word Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, actually, or the English phrase, anointed one. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, all mean exactly the same thing. And it's more like a title. It's not a surname. It's more like president or prime minister or king. But unlike human leaders, this title refers to the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the lord who actually rules over all, the one who rules and reigns the entire universe, the one who rules over Putin and Biden and Johnson and Macron and Morrison and whatever the name of the opposition leader is. Jesus Albanese, I do know that, but you know. Jesus rules them now. He is their king. He is their judge now. And Jesus became the Christ when he rose from the dead himself and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven now. That is his claim. And the title Son of God refers to his role as the king of an eternal kingdom, which he will rule. And that arises out of a particular promise in the Old Testament. If you're taking notes and want to check it out, that's in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. So to believe Jesus is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But one more 
thing I need to draw out here. The word belief here is not an intellectual assent. The word belief here means trusting, relying upon, depending upon something. A couple of weeks ago, a few of us in this room went to a camp called Getaway in a place called Atunga. And there was a zip line. Who went on the zip line if you were there? Oh, look at these brave, wait for it, believing souls. They trusted the zip line, didn't they? Because what, what really shows whether you trust or believe the zip line is it by actually seeing them there and then you're going, yeah, I believe the zip line. They're going, woo, woo, woo. And then these boys screaming like babies as well, woo, woo. And then you're just watching them say, yeah, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. But you're not really believing the zip line until you're actually in it. <laughs> right? Because you've got to be in the zip line to believe it, right? There's a true believer. Someone who is in the zip line where you actually sit on it. That's belief. That makes sense. That's trust. You actually sit on it and your whole life is dependent on the zip line. Do you believe Jesus like that? We say, yeah, yeah, I believe him, I believe him. Sure, he's a great guy. Yeah, miracles, yeah. Oh, yeah, he will rise people from the dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe all of that. But I haven't put my weight of trust upon him and his claims that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, because that will mean all the difference in the world, isn't it? Whether you are a student or a faculty member at ANU, you will rise bodily from the dead to be judged on how you respond to the Christ, Jesus. And if you trust him, then you will so put your weight in the fact that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that you will live for him as Lord, as number one as the king of kings, as the one who rules this universe, so that your whole world will revolve around him and his purposes and not the other way around. You see, it's not about having good deeds outweigh bad deeds or being very religious or being very moral. No, it's all about whether you believe Jesus in the sense of trust him, rely upon him, depend upon him. Do you trust Jesus with your life as the Christ? For this will determine how you face death. You know, I saw two of the closest people in my life take their last breath. My mother and my first wife. And as I saw them draw their last breath, I just saw their body just motionless after. I saw their bodies decay before my eyes and the shell of their bodies without any life in them. It's so easy not to believe this in the face of death. 
But Jesus says you can. You can trust him in the face of death. Because he claims to be the resurrection and the life who himself conquered death and rose back up to life again. And like my mother and my first wife, you can trust him in the face of death. There are sure and certain grounds to trust him. And furthermore, he's not aloof to the pain of death in our world. I mean, look at how Jesus responds in the face of death. In the face of death. We're up to point three in the outlines in case you're wondering. But look at verse 33. Verse 33 and following. When Jesus saw her, now this time it's Mary, not Martha. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Do you see in the face of death and grief, Jesus wept. And he's deeply moved. That, that occurs twice. And the phrase deeply moved actually means outraged. He's outraged. He was outraged in his spirit. Even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead in moments, right? He doesn't go around and say, don't worry, be happy. He doesn't go around and say, I'm about to wake him up now. That's just rock and roll. Don't worry. No, he, he wept. He's outraged. Why? Now, if Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus within minutes, why did he weep? Why did he feel outrage in the face of death? Have another chat at your tables to try and answer this question. Alrighty, I'll get you back together again. Love some thoughts. Why did he weep? Yeah, Lewis. Um, I was kind of thinking that since um, Jesus is God, obviously, and death is a sign of the fall and sin, perhaps he's outraged at you know death and sin and the fall and how it's affecting his loved ones. Mm, so he's outraged at the effects of sin, namely death. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a great thought. Any other thoughts? Naris? Uh, yeah, uh, sure. So I was, this kind of shows Jesus' human side of his two natures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it shows his human reaction, uh, in a sense, because it just seems so human to be able to do that. Yeah. But if the thought was reversed, that is, if it's 
if it shows his divinity, doesn't that shout out even more how wonderful our God is in the face of death? He's fully human, but he's fully God at the same time. That is his claim, and that is who he is. Yeah, thank you. Well, I wonder whether Jesus weeps and is outraged because of the nature of death. You know, people often say, when you're dead, you're dead. When you're six feet under, that's it. Death just happens. That's what my barber used to say. It just happens. It's just one of those things. It's a consequence of life. Leave with no consciousness. It's just it. But as the Lord of life and death, Jesus knows that death is just not right. One headline I saw yesterday said, Russia pounds Mariupol into ashes of dead land. And when you read that, you know it's, it's not right, is it? Death is not natural. It is unnatural. Death is the last enemy, as the Bible calls it. Death is ugly. Death is repulsive. Death generates endless and incalculable damage. Death separates loved ones from one another. Death destroys relationships. And when my first wife died, our family were all holding her hands, her feet, and we, we wept and wept. And nights were very long for months for each and every one of us. Tears were never far away. And do you know how comforting it is to know that Jesus wept in the face of death? It's just so comforting. And Jesus is not removed from our feelings. Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not indifferent. No, Jesus knows what it's like to have your guts wrenched out in the face of death. And he loves us. And he's outraged at death. Because he's not indifferent to it. Because the defining feature of death is that it is the mark of sin, our rebellion against God, our taking exception to God, being God of our lives. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin, what sin deserves, that is, is death. See, sin is the action of not living with Jesus as our Christ, as our Son of God. Sin is not trusting him as our Lord and Saviour, the way we ought to trust a zipline. And because we're all sinners in that sense, wanting to live our own lives, our own way, without God, then God gives us exactly what we want, which is life without Him. And life without Him as the life giver is to choose death. And so we will all die. And Jesus is outraged at that. This is not the way God made the creation in the first place, you see. It was our rebellion against God that caused it. Jesus is outraged at the whole thing. He's outraged at death and the sin that lies behind death. Oh, it's very appropriate that we get outraged at domestic violence. That we're outraged at sexual harassment. One in six students on this campus has made a complaint 
on average, about sexual harassment. It's right to be outraged at that. It's right to be outraged at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what Jesus is outraged at is the sin behind all these things in the face of death. Because he loves what is good and he hates what is evil. And that is what we want from God, isn't it? To let Putin get away with that, is that a good thing? To let sexual traffickers get away with their trafficking, is that a good thing? So it's in this context, you see, we read verse 39, where Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead for four days. That is, Martha, understandably, still doesn't understand what Jesus is about to do in his outrage, in the context of his weeping. And being the practical woman that she is, she points out that corpses will smell after four days. The King James Version apparently said, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) But read on in verse 40. Verse 40, the small number 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, sorry, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. See, here we see in living truth, in living colour, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He can raise dead people from the ground. And when the dead hear his voice, they will rise up from their tombs, bodily, And some say that if Jesus had not mentioned Lazarus' name, everyone would have got up. That's how powerful his word is. But he particularizes it. Lazarus, rise up. And he does. But as Lazarus is raised, note he is raised as a foreshadow of the ultimate physical resurrection. The resurrection on the last day. It's a foreshadow. Because Lazarus is not raised with a resurrection body at this point, never to die again. Now, his death is simply delayed. Indeed, later on, we'll read in John chapter 12 that people are actually making plans to kill Lazarus because of their hatred of Jesus and his followers. But whatever the case, we know that in the grace of God, Jesus can raise people from the dead. People will rise up to be judged on that last day. So I want to ask you, do you believe this? If you are here hearing this biography of Jesus and unsure of what you can believe, please take up our offer to find out more. In a moment, I'm going to get you all to fill out this comment slip. So I just want to prepare you right now because one of the possibilities there is to actually read 
something called uncover mark, which is that second last box there. And we'd love you to tick that if you want to find out more. There is this thing called uncover mark, which is really a biography of Jesus. And we'd love you to read that with us. Look how cool it is, a skin thing, and you've got this thing that can go over, and you've got notes that you can take and so on. But it's really a biography of Jesus, and you can read that with us in a one-to-one at any point in time to find out more. But there are some of us who perhaps have finally come to this point knowing that this really is true. And if you know this to be true, and you want to place your trust in Jesus as your Christ, as your Son of God, then you can pray. I've written a prayer here that really just captures what we've talked about. And you can pray this prayer right now. Look what it says. Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. Please forgive me for not trusting him as my Christ. And please help me to trust him from now on to gladly live for him as my Lord and Saviour. Is that your prayer? Because if it is, and you know this to be true, I'd love to invite you to pray this with me. What I'm going to do is pray this prayer sentence by sentence. And if it is your prayer, then you echo it in your head and your heart to God in silence. And I can assure you that God will answer. If this is your prayer, please pray it with me now. Echo it in your head and your heart to God in silence after I say each line. Please pray with me. Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. Please forgive me for not trusting him as my Christ. And please help me to trust him from now on to gladly live for him as my Lord and Saviour. Amen. Again, if you pray that prayer, sincerely you meant it. Let me assure you that God has answered. And we'd love to find out more. So, in a moment, I think uh, Emmeline's going to lead us in prayer, and then after that we'll hear some more instructions. But as she does that, you might want to tear off this slip now, like I'm doing, to get prepared to write and respond. But the first way we're going to respond is by prayer. Let's pray together.